You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's African American Department. On behalf of the CEO staff, I welcome you to our beautiful facility, even though part of it is under construction. So this evening, um, we have a special guest, and we're going to have Jack to introduce her. Um, I'm Jack Holmes from Johns Hopkins Press, and uh, I'll just uh, I'll do a brief introduction that, that's essentially a bunch of a few thank yous. Uh, thank you, first of all, for being here tonight. Um, thank you to uh, our friends at the Pratt Library. You, if you follow the Pratt schedule, uh, you know that the Pratt are kind of wonderful hosts to Johns Hopkins Press authors uh, throughout the year. We're really grateful for that. It's a great way to get our authors in front of the local community. So uh, we love working with these guys. So uh, we thank them. And um, I guess I'll thank, I'll introduce Catherine by thanking her for this book. Um, uncompromising activist Richard Greener, the first black graduate of Harvard College. We're really proud to have this book on the, the Johns Hopkins University Press list. It seems like it's um, exactly the right time for this book. Um, I don't know if you share this view, but I think the, the controversy and the removal and the debates about um, Confederate statues especially, among the things that that's done, at least for me, is be a kind of reminder and a, a sort of lesson in the history of that Jim Crow era um, kind of undoing all the progress that occurred during Reconstruction. So this history of Richard Greener and what he was able to accomplish in the era of Reconstruction and have that history kind of wiped away and, and forgotten by a lot of people um, for a long time and then brought back in a book like this um, is just a wonderful thing. And we're really proud of, of the author, Catherine, and, and proud to have this book on the Hopkins list. A, a kind of sweet angle to this story, I think, that... I'm sure Catherine will talk about, um, that in this moment when these statues, uh, especially in the South and in Baltimore, are being reconsidered and, and debated and some, in some ways taken down, the University of South Carolina is going to raise Greener's statue um, at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. It's kind of a, a great twist to that story, and I know Catherine will talk a little about that. She's been involved in uh, the effort to put that statue at the university. Um, so uh, we thank Catherine for coming to Baltimore and thank all of you for coming tonight. So please welcome, and actually forgive me, I should read, I'll read Catherine's bio from the back of the, the flap just to give you some context there, I meant to do that. Catherine Reynolds-Shattuck is Distinguished Professor Emerita of Education at the University of South Carolina. She's the author of The Multi-Talented Mr. Erskine, Shaping Mass Culture Through Great Books and Fine Music and also Visions and Vanities, John Andrew Rice of Black Mountain College. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Catherine Reynolds Chaddock. Thanks, and there's probably all different um, levels of engagement with this book uh, already. Some of you have read it, some of you haven't. I'm going to be uh, talking a little bit about it, but uh, from a different, slightly different point of view. But first, I want to say it's good to be back at this library. I uh, did some reach, research here about 10 years ago on um, H.L. Mencken, of course. <laughs> you know, where else would you do Mencken research? And um, hadn't been back in 10 years, so I, I can't wait to come back after all the renovation is done again. Um, this does kind of also, being in Baltimore and, and with the, the Greener book, 
bring full circle because Greener missed being born in Baltimore by about four months when his parents, who were in Baltimore, moved to Philadelphia. And his father, Richard Wesley Greener, was born in Baltimore in um, 1809. Richard Wesley's father was a Virginia slave who, when he was freed, moved to Baltimore and started a school for young African-American youngsters. Uh, Greener's father was sort of a, a, a boot blacker, a dyer, and also the Baltimore agent for Frederick Douglass's newspaper, The Liberator. So he was almost born in Baltimore, had a lot of relatives in Baltimore and so forth. And um, his, but he had a, um, a Puerto Rican grandmother, which was probably where his, his lighter skin came from. I think everybody was probably pretty ethnically mixed at that point, but um, who knows. At any rate, he did have the Baltimore dad and relatives and got back here often because he worked in Washington, D.C. quite a lot. And, of course, he was an orator. He was asked to come speak and so forth. So those are nice connections for him. Um, I don't know why his parents moved to Philadelphia, by the way, other than the, the Navy Yard was there, and his dad did end up working at the Navy Yard, so maybe that was in the works anyway, and it was a, a job move. Who knows? A little bit of a plan for this discussion tonight. I'm going to say something about how I did get started on this book, why, why, my, why this you know, white woman gets started on a book about an African-American man and so forth, and <laughs> why that happens, I still don't know. But it happened. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about not so much a chronology of his life, but what I learned doing this book. And that will give you a lot about the whole thing. You know, just some some key bullet points that I think were important to me to find out. Because I think it's nice to do books because you want to learn something rather than you just want to share something you already know. But that's my bias. And so then I'm going to come over there. They're doing a this for podcast purposes from here. But then I'm going to come over here be among you and, and discuss your, your questions, whatever. Okay, so the way I got interested in Greener, he, I knew from teaching history of higher education at the University of South Carolina that we had an integrated campus from approximately 1873 to 1877 during Reconstruction. We had an integrated legislature and integrated everything. Um, we had federal troops there making sure there wasn't any problems, and they were right on campus. Matter of fact, they, they played baseball with the integrated student body. Uh, and so I knew this, and I knew that our person who integrated the faculty in 1873 was a person named Richard Greener. And I think I knew he was the first graduate of Harvard College, but that was about it. So I was teaching this course about maybe seven years ago now in the fall and I was at a conference in Boston and I went to go to the Harvard bookstore the co-op so the coop whatever and when I got off the underground and went up and across the street I saw this big plaque to Richard Greener and I went holy cow you know who knew that he'd be and it had a lot of information on it about his father was a sailor and it got lost in the gold rush and never came back after greener turned 10 and so forth and so on it's a fairly detailed plaque 
put up by the Cambridge Historical Society right across from Harvard Yard. <coughs> so when I went back, the next time I met with my class, I said, you guys won't believe this, but remember just a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that the integrated university for three and a half years and this guy Richard Greener who was the only black faculty member and so forth and so on. And their response was, well, why don't we have anything on this campus? You know, we really should. They've got something up in Cambridge. We should have something here. He was here. And so we formed the beginning of a committee. The students, myself, I got a couple of other faculty members involved. Then some interesting people around campus got involved. The, the dean of libraries, the dean of music, I don't know why. He, he took a big um, you know, interest in it and so forth and so on. And so we started pushing for, we got to have some kind of memorial to Richard Greener on our campus. It turns out it's not that easy on a public university campus. Oh my gosh, nobody wants it in their backyard, you know. Oh, we could do it here where he used to live. He lived in Lieber House and that's still here. Oh, no, 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 that's too, too close to the sacred part of the university that we don't ever touch, uh, the old part, and so forth and so on. But we finally did, um, we had an ideas competition then we finally found a site after picking that the idea would be a statue. And that would be nice for the university because at that point the only statue, and it's still the only statue we have on the university, and it's not even on campus, it's at the football stadium, is a statue to a Heisman Trophy winner. Now come on, we can do better than that. <laughs> you know, we can do a little better than that. So um, then, then we eventually had a competition for artists and, and selected an artist who had done quite a bit of campus sculpture, and yet it still was on speculation because we hadn't raised the money. But once we got the site plan and the artist's uh, rendering and so forth, we could go to the Board of Trustees, but to get to them, you go through three committees. Seven years later, <laughs> about six years later, the trustees, it, it was passed by everybody who could pass it, and this is about seven years now. I saw the statue about three months ago out in San Diego where it, just before it was to be poured in bronze and they sent me out. I'm like, I'm retired. You can't send me places. They said, no, 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 you, you're the one to know. And I couldn't, you know, we had seen the maquette and it was very, very close to the maquette. So it wasn't surprising. So I'm like desperate to think of things to say. They sent me all the way out here. I finally said, I think the knot in his tie is too big. <laughs> so, anyway, the statue will arrive there in, and it, it, it's about one and a half life size. It'll arrive there in um, early December, January, and then we'll be able to do a dedication. But that's during this time, about three years into it, somebody said, why don't you do a biography of Richard Greener? He needs a bio. And I said, no, no, no. I don't, you know, right now, I'm very involved in other things, whatever. I'm going to retire. And then I started thinking about it. And then as I sort of barely thought about it, I had gotten to know a little bit more about Greener by defending the idea of something on campus. And then all of a sudden, there's a national news story in 2012 all these greener items had been found in a trunk in, in a building in Chicago that was six miles from where he lived the last 15 years of his life in Chicago. 
Nobody knows how it got there. The building was about to be demolished, and one of the wrecking crew workers went up to and said, my gosh, there's a trunk here. We should get this out. And his fellow workers said, no, 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 it's way too heavy. You know, that's not going to happen. So he took a paper bag and started stuffing it with stuff in there. And eventually he took the paper bag to somebody he knew who dealt in antiquarian items. And the, this man just said, and it's kind of how the book begins, do you know who Richard Greener was? Because there was his 1870 Harvard diploma, his uh, even slightly after that, he went to, while he was a professor and librarian at University of South Carolina, he went to the law school there. It was an integrated law school. Got his law degree, and his law his law diploma was there. His license to practice law in South Carolina was there, and a number of other items and books and so forth. So um, they eventually got back to the, the institutions involved, uh, got bought back. And that, that really interested me in terms of, oh, well, first I was just going to sort of do a biography. Now it's a really interesting biography. I've got to find out more, and that's how it happened. Um, I'll tell you a few things about what I learned. First of all, and thank goodness I learned this, because when I started, I really didn't know that much about Richard Greener. I mean, I had not done the research and, and really delved in. I, I knew sort of some items he did. I knew he was the first black graduate of Harvard College. I knew he was the first black professor at a public Southern University. I knew he was the first black diplomat to a majority white country, which was Russia, in, um, from about 1898 to 1906. And so I, I knew these things that titled him, and, and sort of superficially in a way, although it doesn't sound very superficial to do all these things, Oh, and I knew he had been the executive director of the Grant Monument that had raised the money and gotten Grant's tomb in New York City on Riverside Drive. Um, luckily, I found out that there was a lot more substance because if that was all, it wouldn't be worth you know writing a book. He was also a person of, of action. I mean, these things were, of course, indicated some kind of ability and, and so forth. But, you know, having the sort of the, the title around your neck, first to do this, first to do that, thank goodness he also was a person that accomplished a lot, you know, because otherwise there wouldn't have been a whole lot to say about him. You know, he went to his classes at Harvard and graduated. Big deal. He, you know, was a professor who met his classes and, you know, taught his students. But I found out things like, oh, my gosh, he, he wasn't standing there just being a professor teaching his classes or also being the librarian. He actually did stuff like lobby the state legislature endlessly to get scholarship money for the young African Americans that could finally, finally be allowed to come to college in South Carolina. He, he got, ended up with three scholarships from each of 34 counties for the poor African-Americans. Oddly enough about that, that was still on the books when the university closed after Reconstruction, and when it reopened, those scholarships were still there, But they, and it was the first time the university allowed poor white boys, so there was some advantage there. He lobbied the legislature for, for instance, for a preparatory program 
because these were not people that you know could just walk off the plantation and and be prepared and so he had a preparatory it was called sub freshman and a lot of people only got a degree because they got to start with that when he left uh harvard he was at first a um assistant principal at a a a black school in Philadelphia and then in Washington. And he was always lobbying, you know, the local city council and legislature and school board. Why do we have this? Let's integrate these schools. Let's integrate these schools. I mean, he took a very activist stance to everything. When he had to leave South Carolina at the end of Reconstruction, when the university closed and they decided they would reopen as an all-white institution, he went to Washington, D.C. He was a um, kind of a clerk at the Treasury Department, sort of, sort of a, a, a little bit of a patronage job. But that wasn't enough. He decided to teach night school at Howard, and eventually he became the dean of the Howard Law School. He went on recruitment trips for the Howard Law School because it was shrinking in size and Eventually, he lost his deanship because they closed the Howard Law School for a while because it got so small. It was basically a night law school at that time. But anyway, he, thankfully for me, I mean, I could have started this work and just found out he was a jerk. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh, what if I do? What am I going to do? Nobody's going to want to read about him. And and luckily, that didn't happen. I, I was very, very fortunate in that regard of finding out that, hey, this is somebody that's, you know, worth doing stuff about. I'll tell you another thing I found out. It was really interesting to me to find out that when he graduated from Harvard in 1870, that, you know, you'd think, wow, he just demonstrated that a African-American student can make it through Harvard. He had been to Oberlin and Andover, so he was very prepared. And he had had some, a, a benefactor who got him a private tutor. Now, remember, he left school at age 11. His parents had gone up to, to Boston because there were in, integrated schools. And his father, though, died, and he had to leave school to help support his mom. So it wasn't that easy to be prepared to get to Harvard. But he he managed it with a benefactor. He was a very scrappy kid. He met everybody in Cambridge. He knew everybody. They kind of liked him and so forth. But when he got through Harvard, you'd think, that's great. Look at at what that proves. Actually, to me, the greater demonstration was the fact that it demonstrated that while somebody with a different background, different color skin, different everything from everybody at Harvard could get through. They couldn't get what a Harvard degree got the other people. The other people weren't leaving Harvard to be assistant principals in tiny little schools. They were leaving to go to law school, to go to med school. To One, one guy in his class founded a college, that, no, a school, the Cutler School in New York. Another became a lieutenant governor. Another eventually became a governor, et cetera, et cetera. And there's an interesting little theoretical construct by a guy named Ralph Turner that says there is both 
contest mobility and sponsored mobility. And contest mobility is, hey, you're going to have mobility and be able to go places if you're the person that um, is determined, is bright, is hardworking, et cetera. That's contest mobility. But sponsored mobility is you're going to go places if you also have the, the right qualities of the person that can go places. So, you know, the idea of the right qualities obviously did not at that time in 1870 extend to the African Americans, nor to the women for that matter. You know, to go places, you really had to have both of those types of mobility. He could, you know, Harvard could not give you that, that right quality. Those were the people that already had it when they went into Harvard. Um, so, so he had an uphill battle. I mean, it, it just, you know, was, was not enough. His, his life was, was not easy that way. Um, another thing, a learning for me, was, for instance, Henry Louis Gates once called Greener the leading African-American intellectual of his time. And he was a fairly intellectual guy. He knew, by the time he graduated Harvard, he knew French well, Latin well. He taught them both at University of South Carolina, among other things. He knew a lot about history, a lot about philosophy. And he would go around in a scholarly way, actually um, speaking, lecturing about things like uh, uh, some of the, the names of them. Socrates as a teacher. The purpose of the Great Pyramids. Ireland's mistakes. And, of course, the history of the Negro race. And, in fact, after he presented that last one, a Baltimore newspaper actually did call him um, or did, did mention that he maintained his high reputation for scholarship and erudition. He made a dry and technical subject luminous with information and illustration. Yes, he was a scholar, but more important really to me became his, his advocacy for equal rights for opportunity and so forth. And he was speaking as much about that through every presidential campaign from 1876 through the 1880s and 90s into the 1890s. The McKinley campaign was the last one he was super involved with. But um, his oratorical skills and his writing skills could go either way. He He could politic and convince you, and yet he could also be the scholar when he needed to. But some people only remember him as a scholar, and I, I think that's, that's short, short changes him. I, to me, he was more important as an orator for the cause, as it were. Um, I'll tell you another thing that I didn't totally understand, and I probably should have. Skin color mattered. Skin color mattered. Light, medium, dark, half light, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the reviewers for my book, when I sent the proposal to Hopkins, warned me of that and said, wait a minute. He was, you know, th- this lucky light-skinned black. How do you, it wasn't easy for him, admittedly. But how do you think it was for the dark-skinned? 
you know, kind of thing. And I took that seriously when that reviewer said that, and I thought, this is good to think about. It did matter. He had some advantages at his time that um, others might not have had. On the other hand, he, it was possible then, as it is now, and I, as I think we saw in some of the Obama campaigns, it was possible to be too dark for the whites but too white for the blacks. And that, you know, there was a healthy black press at that time. Many of those folks were very suspicious of him. He was getting too cozy to white people. He felt he had to. He had to have a job, you know, and, and his Treasury Department job put him only with white people. When he went to the Grant Monument Commission, he was the only paid person. He was the executive director raising the funds and so forth. Um, um, Mayor Grace was the director of, of the commission. He was unpaid. Hamilton Fish was unpaid. The Steinways were unpaid. Um, everybody, it was all the big names in New York. But he was the executive director in the office. He was the only person of color in that office. And he, he got a certain amount of criticism from his his colleagues in in the old you know cause political cause era and so forth for that cozying up to the whites um his family of five children and a wife uh the wife was from washington dc eventually left him and passed for white and they couldn't have done what they did otherwise he was heading for Vladivostok. He got from McKinley a diplomatic appointment as first as consul, consul, American consul to Vladivostok, and it was the first American diplomatic presence in, in Vladivostok, Russia. But then that the Russians didn't really want somebody that high up, so he became commercial agent, but that's okay. you know. Of course, he always told everybody, I actually have all the duties of a consul since I'm the only one here. But anyway, so um, when he left for Vladivostok in 1898, he and his wife were having quarrels anyway. And they were living in New York. This was after the Grant Monument thing was over, but he was doing lawyer stuff in New York, defending... Um, black citizens and so forth and he decided he was going to Vladivostok and she decided she and the kids were staying in New York and when he left they changed their name and became white they were living in a all white building it was very simple for them I mean it was as simple as keeping your mouth shut they were they were light skinned. They changed their name to to green rather than greener. Some of the kids took the middle name DaCosta to because they thought well that that'll be more sort of ethnic like and and it'll be more acceptable. And the hey, passing that was another learning for me. It wasn't a bad thing. It was actually good for these people. They got opportunities. The, the daughter went to Columbia, to Teachers College Columbia. The son went to City College of New York. Another son became an engineer in a graduate 
program at University of Tennessee in 1912. Like, University of Tennessee is going to let you in in 1912 if they know who you are. You know, whatever. And they got opportunities that they would not have had. And I can, so I can totally understand that. It's, they never saw their father again, any of them. He never saw them again. Um, he, he did, and for those of you who haven't read the book, he did have another family when he was in Vladivostok, a, a Japanese family, a lady from Japan who was, Vladivostok was full of Chinese, Japanese, Russians, etc. And he had three children with that family, but when he was recalled, McKinley was, no, McKinley was no longer alive. Teddy Roosevelt had served out his term and then been elected. Um, Teddy Roosevelt wanted his own people in those. They were patronage jobs, those diplomatic jobs. So he never got back. He, it was on his way back in 1906, however, that everybody decided everything he owned was lost in the San Francisco earthquake. Any historians who knew about him said, well, we can't write about him. We know nothing about him. Everything he had was lost in the earthquake. Apparently not, because all these things that were supposedly lost showed up in Chicago many, many decades later. So um, I I don't think he actually lost anything of of value in the earthquake, but he was there for it on his way back. I I had another thing that I learned, and I always questioned because he called um, all his life after after Reconstruction he called South Carolina my adopted state, or he would call it himself a South Carolinian. And I'm like, he was only in South Carolina three and a half years. What what's that about? He was he's born born in Philadelphia, grew up in Boston, lived in in New York and Washington, and so forth. That three and a half years, however, was a very good time. Nobody in all of the state government and and the university uh, administration and faculty colleagues and so forth ever questioned anything about him. He was just treated equal, equal, equal. If he got on a conveyance, he didn't have to go to the back of it or go to the special car on the train. He was treated totally equal, mostly because the 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 racist people who had, would have been not wanting to treat him equal had pretty much gone underground during Reconstruction. I mean, they just didn't didn't associate. They weren't elected to the state legislature anymore because all of a sudden everybody had the vote and they weren't in positions of leadership anymore. And those that were the white citizenry that were, were mostly the very liberal whites, the carpetbaggers and the scalawags. So it was a very good time. Reconstruction gets a bad rap in the South, especially, oh my gosh, you know, they came and the federal troops took us over and all this. But it was a wonderfully... Um, open time for those that could enjoy, wanted to enjoy openness and um, collegiality and inclusion and generosity. So I learned something about that. One other last thing about what I learned. I learned something about the progressive era, which we tend to call mm, about the late 
1800s until the 19 mid 20s or even 1930 or so um, because it was supposedly progressive in cleaning up corrupt government especially local governments in actually getting minimum wage laws passed in letting unions come in that could you know force better treatment of workers and so forth and I mean it there it was a lot of bossism that we got over during the progressive era and it was it's always in history seen as something things got accomplished during that era you know trust busting and and so forth and much more fairness much more that era was progressive for whites only there was no progressive era for anybody who was a a different color, a different ethnicity, a different whatever different was. And in fact, in the progressive era, in that early couple of decades of the 1900s, lynchings actually increased hugely. Jim Crow laws increased hugely. The inability of anybody but the lily white male men, sorry, uh, to vote increased hugely and so forth so you had these supposedly progressive presidents even and and other politicians like Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson who really yeah they were into trust busting and making government clean up and you know fairness to the workers but they did not really care about the huge problems that were being suffered by the the other citizens who weren't the lily white males so that came as kind of a surprise to me because I had always taught it a kind of differently <laughs> kind of more optimistically and you know even somebody that teaches can I would say the progressive era also brought in things in education and so forth because I was teaching education well yeah it did bring in some things but um, I, I did find out a little differently now and you know you you, you take some of these progressive politicians who accomplished so much, but they had feet of clay in many cases. That I want to—that's it for the podcast, guys. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.